Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are back on the old podcast feed, which also happens to be the new podcast feed. And I'm fired up to bring you guys the new version of the show. We got Gresham for the takeaways. We got fantasy and DFS advice with Fabs. We've got a fantastic guest in to break down the Texan situation. As always, we get to all of your questions in the six pack. Let's go. All right, welcome back in. Same show, different podcast feed. It's the Albert Breer Show now. We're not calling it the MMQB Podcast with Albert Breer anymore, which we have called it for the last four years, but we are going back to the original home of the MMQB Podcast with Albert Breer, and that's where you're going to find the Albert Breer Show now. We are planning a lot of cool stuff, and we're going to evolve the feed a little bit over time, but we know what you want. We want. We know that you want a lot of the stuff that we were already giving you, and so we're still going to have the flagship show here on a weekly basis. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for following me over here. Thank you for continuing to download the show. I promise you we're going to work hard to give you the best NFL podcast that you can find. And in an effort to do that, we are bringing back our friend, Andrew Gresh the third for the takeaways. You know I can't introduce you any other way for our first show on the new feed, Gresh. Well, congratulations on the new feed number one. Uh, and I'm disappointed that there wasn't some uh sing songy eighties TV, the Albert Breer show, or something like that that uh, hasn't been put together yet. We're gonna get some people in the lab to get that done. We need the corny open. <laughs> Shelby, get on that. Uh yeah, we gotta we gotta do something. I was actually thinking about different music and everything else. And I think Shelby's got something for us going. He's going to add some music to the takeaways too. So he has been hard at work in the lab, working on some of that stuff. Um, I just couldn't figure out what, like I, I actually thought about like maybe the theme music from the program, um, since that's the best football movie of all time. Like that would be nice, right? That would be really good. I mean, you're the, you're the radio pro, so you probably know more about this than I do. Well, it, it all about well, when you get into the podcast world and you get into licensing music and stuff like that. Like if we wanted to blow out a bunch of Van Halen today because of the passing of Eddie Van Halen, yeah. I don't know if uh, you'd necessarily be able to completely get away with that. But there's a lot of stupid stuff out there that we could steal ideas from to come up with uh, uh, to come up with an appropriate open for this show. Thank you seriously for having me be a part of it. Because Lord knows, it sounds like we are about to have some incredibly layered and nuanced conversation in the league this week. 
Yeah, it's about to get real here. Um, we are going to have, and you know, like the the tone of this show usually isn't the most serious, but we are going to have a serious discussion to actually kick off the new show. We're going to go right into the takeaways. We've got a great guest coming for you. we got Michael Fabiano coming with the DFS fantasy tips for the week. we got all of your mail. So all of the old stuff, that's still there, but we're starting like we always do with the takeaways. And we have to start with the big news on for Monday morning, and... I, Gresh, I don't know about you, but you know, I woke up and you know, get my kids ready for school, and you know, my phone starts blowing up, and um, yeah, I mean, it's it sort of, it feels like a redux. It felt like a redux of Saturday morning in a way. You had a star Patriot player, you had the continuation of the Titan situation, um, and I think you know, like this is, I mean, this is another sign that's not going away. But my takeaway here. Um, the finger pointing is commencing and I think that this is going to get really interesting because if you go back to July and August, I think the NFL and the NFL PA and all the 32 teams did such a fantastic job of coming together because I do think back then everybody had the same goal. How can we play? The players wanted to get paid. The owners wanted to make money. The league wanted to keep the train on the tracks. Everybody was aligned for once and they all, they oftentimes aren't, but everybody was aligned for once going in the same direction. And, you know, it seemed like the effort was very much a collaborative one. You always hear that word. Um, Well, this was truly a collaborative effort to try to get the right protocols in place. And I think they did, for the most part, a fantastic job. Most of the teams did great as far as, you know, adhering to the protocols over the course of the summer. And the numbers were fantastic. You know, but it's how many times have I used that old Mike Tyson line with you, Gresh? Uh, A lot. You know, but, but, but you can be, but I'll let you take it. Uh, everybody's got a game plan to take, get punched in the face. And the NFL is getting punched in the face right now by COVID-19. And so what'll be interesting to watch here going forward. So the Titans facility was scheduled to open on Wednesday. It is not opening. It in all likelihood can't reopen until at the earliest Friday, which puts the game against the Buffalo bills on Sunday in flux. Um, the uh, you know Stefan Gilmore you know test positive he was a close contact of Cam Newton I'm told he was on the COVID plane the Patriots had two different planes one with guys who were close contacts to camp with Cam Newton and the re- and the other with the rest of the traveling party Gilmore was one of Cam Newton's close contacts so there is reason to believe that he was infected by Cam um, and so you know I think now what you're seeing I think the the messaging from the league office is. The protocols are fine. The team, the, the, the people following the protocols are the problem. And I think a lot of people with the teams are now looking at the league office sideways and saying, wait a minute, it's really easy to say that from Park Avenue. Why don't you come over here and see how hard it is to actually make this happen? Why don't you see what this is like on a day-to-day basis? Why don't you look at the effort that all of our guys are making? And so I think on one end, you've got finger pointing from the league office to the team saying, this isn't on us. We hired all these fancy doctors and we got these boards put together and we gave you guys the answers to the test and you guys couldn't you guys couldn't follow that. And the teams are saying, this is a lot freaking harder than you think it is. And I think that the discipline for the players, that's something that we talked about from the very beginning on this. That and and honestly, it was the same in the other sports as well. And yes, they went into bubbles. But whomever followed the protocols the best and whomever's players were most disciplined, especially in the NFL away from the facility, those were the teams that in theory were going to be able to survive. And I think the monkey wrench that has been thrown into this 
is the difference between an issue popping up on the week of a home game versus an away game. Yeah. Because what did they really learn from Tennessee? You can't just pull one guy off and then take the whole traveling party and travel. Okay. Well, the Patriots learned that and they tried to split everybody up and you still end up having a positive test of someone like Stefan Gilmore. And by the way, yesterday, a practice squad defensive tackle, Bill Murray, it might be the only time Bill Murray would ever be mentioned in an NFL podcast, but he, he came up positive as well. So there is another Patriots player on stop of the sensationalism that the name Stefan Gilmore will get because he's a big time superstar and the reigning defensive player of the year. Um, I, I, and look, the finger pointing should not surprise anyone because welcome to our country in 2020 where employees are yelling at employers over things like this, where there are players who say, Hey, if I, you know, worked at uh, a a restaurant or a department store, I would have to be assuming a level of risk anyway. At least I'm assuming level of risk and potentially making tons of money. That's going to be worth the risk that I'm putting myself through. This is a part of managing COVID. States are going through this as well. People are going through this. We really should have never thought in the back of our minds that the NFL wouldn't end up with an issue like this. I think what's interesting too is that this is like a different so it like like Steph didn't get this presumably from traveling, right? Like Steph right. got this from Cam. Right. Okay, like that that at least that's what it looks like right now. Mm-hmm. And so he didn't get this from traveling. He got this from being around Cam. And so now do we find out, like, say somebody else gets it, right? And, like, that person wasn't on the COVID plane. That person was on the other plane. Right. Like, now we're talking about, like, questions about travel. Do you keep close contacts off of planes? Like, you know, like, there's, like, all sorts of questions there. Um, I'll, I'll fall on the sword on this one. Like, I... I thought travel wasn't going to be a problem um, because there were some such strong protocols. Uh, we're going to find out. And it didn't seem to help the Titans either. So no. it's going to be interesting the way this goes forward. I've heard, I mean, I've heard, put it this way, that call with between like the NFL and the head coaches and general managers, I heard the Titans got straight up shamed on that call. Like I heard it was, I heard like on that call, wow. like there was a lot of, here X, Y, and Z. Here's what we here's what we're finding in Tennessee. This better not be you. And they were sort of held up as the example there. And so, you know, like the like like how does travel play into this? Um, do you feel comfortable putting close contacts after you have a positive test back on a plane? Um, you can see in the new protocols are trying to limit the number of close contacts, which I think is interesting. Um, they they all wear these little devices, you know, where you can see how long people are spending around each other and everything else. And so um, it's, it's going to be interesting how the roadmap evolves from here and whether or not the teams and the league can continue to work together, or if this is just going to turn into a big bleep throwing contest. Well, I would expect that it's going to turn into a bunch of poo flinging because that's what we do now. And, you know, think of what's going on with the LA chargers right now. This isn't COVID, but to me, it ties in. When Tyrod Taylor had the issue where they, you know, they hit the nerve or instead of hitting the nerve, they ended up puncturing his lung and trying to give him one of those shots to kind of numb up his ribs. What was the first thing that Anthony Lynn talked about? Oh, no, 
He's our starting quarterback. Oh, no. When he's back, he'll be the starter because what's the worry there from an ownership standpoint? And by the way, the coach is representative ownership. It's the whole, we don't want any legal liability. We don't want the, like, this guy's going to earn his money. He is still the starter. Whenever we can get him back, he's going to be the guy. And I think part of the reason they're going to put him back out there once he is right is because they don't want to get sued as an organization. And now that's where this is all good. That now that's where this could end up going with COVID is our organizations going to act in the best interest of themselves and trying to mitigate their either liability or risk. If a player decides to get frisky and say, no, 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 your protocols weren't good enough. Unfortunately, I think that's where this is going to go, Bert. And, and look, here's my first takeaway and it ties right into what we're talking about. The National Football League had eight months in theory to come up with an alternative schedule, right? And eight is too strong, right? So let's go April, May, June, July, August, okay? So let's say they had four months to figure out how they could tweak their schedule. They also make the schedule. And I understand that there is a formula that goes into all of that. But when you have the New England Patriots flying across the country in the middle of COVID, Somebody maybe at the league office might have said, hey, you know what? I know we have these schedule formulas and everything, but maybe just maybe we should reexamine what we should do for this year to try to mitigate risk by cutting down travel. And it's interesting, Bert, that you said, hey, I'll fall on the sword on this. I didn't think travel was going to be a big deal. I think clearly the NFL thought the same thing, considering you have teams that are flying all across the country and maybe now in hindsight. We should have looked at this as a one-year sort of, I don't know, I didn't want to say addendum, right? As one year where you had to rebuild the schedule differently because you wanted to try to maybe regionalize some things. And now you've got teams that can't get on planes. And now you got games that, again, you have to look at the home games versus the away games when it comes to COVID very differently because your facility you have control in, in theory, yeah. playing, eh, it's a little different. So I, I think the league, and also not building in any schedule flexibility, uh, or at least having the contingency plan with the networks to build in schedule flexibility, because right now it doesn't look like they, it doesn't look like they have much flexibility yeah. in the schedule. Yeah. And I, I think it's, so what you're going to see too is like that the, and over the next few weeks, the margin for error is coming off the table. So you're already out your margin for error with the Titans and the Steelers, right? I believe the Lions and the Packers are on bye weeks these this week. I think they're the two. And those are the first scheduled bye weeks. So as we go now, you're going to start to see the margin for error with all of the teams come off the table week by week, right? Like so like you know, now you're out of flexibility with the Titans. We get past Sunday, you're out of flexibility with Detroit and 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 and, uh, and Green Bay. And then every week it's either two or four teams that are coming off the table. And I look, I think adding a week 18 makes sense, right? Like I think it's just add a week 18 and give yourself that flexibility where you can move a game where you can, you know, like, like if you need to move games into that week 18, you can do it. Is there competitive issues with that? Sure. There are, but we all like, like that's like, do we think the I'll put it this way? Do we think the Titans are going to play the bills on Sunday? Uh, no, because their outbreak is their their outbreak is way worse than we ever would have expected. Okay, okay. So if the Titans don't play the Bills on Sunday, think about this circumstance: 
the Chiefs, right, will have played three games in 10 days, Monday, Sunday, Thursday. Wow. Do you know who they play Thursday, a week from Thursday? Uh, I don't off the top of my head. It's too early to be asking me these questions. The Buffalo Bills. Oh, my God. So the Bills would be going into that game on 11 days rest with a team against a team playing his third game in 10 days. And I know you're not a big believer in Buffalo. Right. But that, but that could be for the number one seed, right? But, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so my, my whole point is like we're taking like competitive things off the table, right? Like, because we're saying like this is going to be screwy. So, yeah, I mean, you, I think you create a week, you get to 18. That's where you can dump some games if you need to. And I think you eliminate the Super Bowl bye week. Okay. Cause, and that means eliminating the Pro Bowl, which, I mean, do we, does anybody really believe the Pro Bowl is getting played? Like, no. does anybody think that in January we're going to be flying guys from all different corners of the country into a central location? No. no. Right. Like, you thought people were, you, you thought like people like bagging out of the Pro Bowl was out of control. Like, you know, in the in the past, you wait till January 2020 if they try to play that thing. No doubt. They'll, they'll wait for the uh, bonus <laughs> checks to clear. Maybe if those and I guess those have to be honored by contract. But yeah, yeah you're going to name these people and then you're going to be like, hey, here's the honor. Here's the check. Don't play the game. So, yeah. So I think it's I mean, to me, it's just I, like I, I think you move, you create a week 18, you eliminate the Super Bowl bye week. Maybe you actually kind of, I, I guess, like give yourself, like if you wanted to create like a playoff bubble, you'd have a chance to do that. Like, right. Like, because it would be mean maybe four weeks instead of five then in the bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, I, I, I that, that I think is a solution. I, I think like the regionalized bubble idea, my understanding is one of the things that would be difficult about this. I'd be interested to hear your opinion on this because you played at the division one level. Um, practice fields are a problem. Like if you tried to put eight teams in one place, it'd be yep. really freaking hard to find enough practice fields that are up to NFL standards to have eight teams practicing for games every single week. Well, just think of this, right? Okay. So quickly, you and I are are based in New England. So let's look at it from just a New England perspective in terms of what could have been. So you're going to play two with Buffalo. You're going to play two with the Jets and you're going to play two with Miami, right? So there's six games right there for your division. What other 10 teams could the NFL have pulled from where the, the Patriots could have played and they weren't say flying across the country, Yeah. right? So you play the Giants, you play the Redskins, you play the Ravens, you play the Steelers, you can play Cleveland, you play Cincinnati. There's six right there that are, they're not bus rides, but they're very short, easy flights. If you're going to Florida, maybe you could fly down to Carolina if you wanted to, to go play a game. Or if you're okay going to Miami, maybe you could have played Atlanta and kept all that travel on the East Coast or maybe played Indianapolis. And I just wonder if you, you would never do a regional bubble but could you have essentially said, okay, here's how we can group all of these teams up and yeah. then fill in the holes as you needed to so that you didn't have teams that were on five and a half or six hour flights one way or the other. And I think in hindsight, the NFL will look back at that, especially since the way this Titans thing is kind of mushroomed and they'll say, okay, maybe, maybe that's a, you know, in hindsight, you know, maybe that was a big mistake by us. And I don't think like, I, like, I honestly think like at this point, if I'm the league office and if I'm like, you know, a team owner, like, like the way I look at it now, you know what this like, like we're just gonna, This is like the 82 or 87 strike, 
right? Let's say if you have to have to look at it, right? Like, so this is going to be screwy. Our schedule is not going to be perfect. If we need to screw with it a little bit, we need to screw with it a little bit. That's right. That's just the circumstances. And so like, I don't think you can, I think you have to go to the TV networks now, if you haven't already mm-hmm. and said, listen, we are, we are preparing to blow this thing the F up. Mm-hmm. And you have to be prepared for that too, because this is a very, very different year. So, um, yeah, I think like that that's probably like as far as my lifetime, and I was two years old for the eighty two strike and seven for the eighty seven strike. So I like that like I I don't remember the first one. I remember the second one a little bit. And it's just like I know how I you know, I know the story I've heard stories from those years, how screwy things were. And so I think that you just have to accept the fact that it's gonna be screwy. We're we are gonna get into some football now. My second takeaway for the week, Gresh, you know, I have to weigh in what happened. I have to hit weigh in on what happened in Houston and um you know, I think that this is just another example of how when people can't work together, like people working, people, people's inability to work together can be the biggest impediment to setting up a winning organization. And I just remember it with Indianapolis, with Ryan Grigson and Chuck Pagano, with San Francisco, with, um, you know, with Jim Harbaugh and with Trent Balky. And those weren't situations that were like dumpster fires to begin with. Those teams were winning for a while, you know? And so... I think so often, you know, the what derails good organizations, what derails teams that's going in the wrong direction is when you start to have people pulling for power. And so, um, you know, I'm going to give you kind of an interesting nugget here, and I want you to chew on it and let me know what your reaction is. Now, I think a lot of people have sort of viewed Bill O'Brien becoming the GM in January in Houston as a power grab, right? And I know, like, O'Brien, I don't think like O'Brien believed the coach should be making like should be very very involved in personnel decisions. I'm not denying that, and he wanted to be very involved in putting the team together. I'm not denying that. Like I think he wanted the power um, that like say Bill Belichick had um, over building the team. I don't think that he necessarily wanted the GM title, and the reason why he got it in January. I'm gonna be very clear about this. I tweeted this last night, and I just think it's an interesting kind of sidelight to all of this. Cal McNair had watched his organization fire two GMs in about an 18-month span, elevate somebody from outside the organization into an executive vice president role in Jack Easterby, who had been a team chaplain, I mean, five years earlier, and was a character coach coming from New England, all right? So he looked at all of this, and he said, we need to start holding people accountable for what's happening here, and we can't just have everybody throwing everybody else under the bus. And... My understanding is at the end of January, when he gave Bill O'Brien the GM title, when it became clear that after not hiring Nick Casario the previous June, they weren't going to hire a GM at that point, he basically said, we may not have a GM, we may not have a new GM in house, but somebody has to take responsibility for what's going on here with massive, like the, the Laramie Tunsil move, the Jadevian Clowney move. Those were already in the books at that point. So that's why he gave Bill O'Brien the GM title. He said, you know what? No more running from whatever hap- happens with this roster. This is on you now. And if I, if I don't like what I see, then I'm coming to you. I'm not going to anyone else. And so I think that's sort of where the rubber hit the road where, all right, like now Clowney's on him. Now Tunsil's on him. Now DeAndre Hopkins, you know, which happened a couple months later, that, that wound up being part of his record. And that's why I think he's gone. And I don't disagree with all of those moves in a vacuum. I do think if you had a experienced general manager there, the return is the it, like, like the, the the terms of those deals is the issue. 
Tunsil's a really good player. I understand why Hopkins was a problem. I understand why Clowney was a problem. I understand the way that Bill O'Brien was trying to beat the build the team. But the issue is when people look at that terms of those deals and say, well, wait a second, he's getting a lot less for Hopkins than he gave up to go get Tunsil. And whether, you know, no matter what you argue over positional value, like those are two really good players. And why is there the disconnect there? And then, you know, you kind of look at it and say, okay, like, well, why is this happening? It's because, you know, you had somebody who wasn't as experienced in that area making those decisions. And now, because Cal had given him that title, it was, you're not running from this anymore. This isn't somebody else's problem. This is your problem. And then, you know, when Deshaun Watson gets off to the start that he's gotten off to over the first four weeks, and when, you know, Hopkins plays the way that he's played in Arizona, I think, you know, Cal McNair looked at that, saw, you know, looked at the standing, sees 0-4, and, and decides it's time to move on. Well, there's a, a lot to unpack that you rolled out there. Number one, it's actually kind of funny when you had mentioned, uh, well, you know, Bill O'Brien wanted all the power, but none of the title and, and responsibility that would come with being the GM, which is just uh, so Bill O'Brien. And uh, look, being a general manager means you're going to have to lie or fib to the public because what is really going on behind the scenes shouldn't be getting out. Why did the, why did DeAndre Hopkins have diminished value? Because everybody knew it was about the contract because they let all that info get out and they couldn't find a way to manage relationships with the players so that of course there's going to be somebody that's going to be fussy and they're not going to like their money. But the reason DeAndre Hopkins was being traded was out there and it diminishes the value of the player, let alone the fact that Bill O'Brien just made bad trades. He overpaid for people because he couldn't find a way to draft the left tackle. You know, they took, was it Julian Davenport? Was that the kid's name where they like, it was the name out of the sky and it was like, oh yeah, this guy's a great project. Well, we're going to ship him away in a deal where what the hell you might've been able to flip just one first round pick and a sweetener. If you wanted to go get someone like Laramie Tom, and you know what he did? He made Madden trades. Seriously, like yeah. we would all sit around and play Madden. Ooh, I got Laramie Tunsil and Kenny Stills and da 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 for a first and a second round pick. Oh my God, I can't believe I was able to pull off this fictional trade because it should be a fictional trade. Well, you know what though, Gresh? Like that's sort of like the way coaches are, though, right? Like I think that that's sort of why the coaches sometimes need the guardrails of having a general manager. Like a, like a Howie Roseman, you know what I mean? Like somebody like that who is a like a, who's paid to be a negotiator. Like that's what he is. Like he is a negotiator. He's a deal maker. And you know, I think that that's sometimes what happens with coaches is they just they decide I need this come hell or high water. I'm going to go get it, or I need to get rid of this guy come hell or high water. I'm going to get rid of him. And they don't play the game enough in order to make those things happen, you know. And so I think that's like a lot of times that's the Achilles heel of coaches who get who wind up with this amount of power. And, you know, even like a great city, like, like a great organization like Seattle, you see it sometimes, right? Like where you sort of see the coach driven, like, I need this. Like, so let's go overpay for this. And they've done a great job over the years, yep. but we've seen them overpay for Jimmy Graham, overpay for Percy Harvin. And they've been able to survive some of those things. But, you know, I think like, like, I think that's sort of part of it with, with O'Brien is like that, you know, he just decided like, like, and I think a lot of the moves were well-reasoned, but it's like. You really have to play the game. Once you decide what you're going to do, 
you got to play the game too. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like you can't just keep going to the dolphins and say like, and not take no for an answer, which is I, like my understanding is what happened. They kept going back to the dolphins who didn't want to trade Laramie Tunsil. And you can't just say, okay, like, well, you know, this guy, like we can't have him in our locker room anymore. So like, let's just get rid of him. And like, like let's not be patient. Let's not play the game. Let's just, you know, put him out on the street corner and, and deal him. And you know, like even like the, the clowny deal, like, you dealt him after the deadline to assign guys to long-term deals. So whoever traded for him, like which was Seattle, was only getting him for a year. So that killed his value, you know? And so there's so many little parts of playing the game that I think are important, you know, for a general manager to do. Like, so again, like I agree with a lot of the things that O'Brien did. Like, I think like a lot of the roster building stuff like made sense to me. The idea of value and the idea of getting value for what you have, I think, was a big part of why those moves wind up looking the way that they did in retrospect. And before I get to my number two, you can see the writing on the wall. Cal Cal McNair is going to make the mistake. He's going to give the power to Jack Easterby, who, again, five years ago was essentially a life coach in an NFL organization. And now that guy is going to have the ear of the owner and be a part of putting together an NFL roster, an NFL roster, by the way, that now needs to be questioned because a little bit of what you brought up in terms of the, you know, the accountability there, JJ Watts been there. How long? Yeah. Deshaun Watson's been there. How long? You know, I know veteran players in other places and other organizations that are either holding the coach or their teammates accountable for them not being able to get to where they want to get to. And yet it's all JJ Watts, a cute guy and his brothers and they're all fun. And, you know, he raises money. He's he's a credit to the human race. There's no question. But is that guy walking up to someone in the locker room and saying, you know what? You're not doing your job. And I am, and I'm sick of it because we know that happens in NFL locker rooms. You know, the old, I don't need a bunch of cats in there. I need a bunch of dogs. I don't need a bunch of, I need a bunch of, (laughs) that's, you know, that's what the old coastal Carolina coach, but that's what it feels like is maybe missing in Houston. All right. I'm going to ask one of the more 30,000 foot view questions for my takeaway. Number two through four weeks in the NFL is the scoring in the NFL right now, Bert, because of great offense or is it because of bad defense? And I know most people are going to say, eh, it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. I think right now we have now hit the era of what we would say fast break football. Right. Where you're going to spread them out. You're going to make people run. You can play fast. You want to keep people guessing. And if you've got a great quarterback who's a trigger man and can control all that stuff, this is a year where having that veteran quarterback is, to me, going to make a difference in the end mm-hmm. because they know when to hit the brakes. They know when to hit the accelerator. And when you look at what Aaron Rodgers is doing, I mean, yeah. good. and I'm going to get to him in a little bit, but when you see the way that now Brady is starting to operate, and I know he had the pick six, but you can see it with Brady, with Rodgers, with Russell Wilson. I will begrudgingly give credit to Allen in Buffalo, who is off to a great start. Yeah. You know, Lamar Jackson is a different kind of guy in terms of where some of these teams want to spread people out and go fast break. They're kind of packing it in with the ability to sort of open it up and spread it out. They're kind of that exotic fruit. And right now it just feels like there are a lot of teams, Bert, that are trying to find the right defensive personnel that they can put on the field to slow down passing games 
and just manage other teams' run games. Can I give you a fun theory? Please do. Okay, so this is a, I'm gonna a little preview for my game plan column. It'll be up on Thursday. We'll have some of this in there. So I was talking to a coach on Tuesday about this, about the scoring being up, and I, you know, I asked him why, like, like what he thinks, you know, is happening. And his theory was that I, the empty stadiums are a big part of it. And here was the here, here was the logic, and I thought this was really interesting. He said his belief is that wide receivers are like on the whole much better in the NFL than defensive backs, right? Like on the whole, there's better depth at the position. Additionally, he said that he thinks defensive linemen are much better than offensive linemen. And his whole theory is crowd noise evens that out, right? Like because what crowd noise does, crowd noise can help um, the offensive linemen handle the defensive linemen. Or wait, let me see if I got this right. I, I got to do this in my head. Or actually, like the, the crowd noise can help the defensive linemen, right? So the crowd noise helps the defensive linemen because you, you, it's hard to communicate. And so, so now, you know, you got the defensive linemen. They're getting off the ball fast. They're getting to the quarterback. And so the defensive backs who aren't as good as the wide receivers are, don't have to cover as long. So they're, they're, they're therefore more effective. Take the crowd noise out of it. Now, all of a sudden, the offensive line can communicate. You can organize your protection a little bit better. And now that difference between the defensive lineman and the offensive lineman shrinks a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. So now the quarterback's getting the ball. He can be a little bit more comfortable back there. And that, of course, highlights the difference between the receivers and the defensive backs. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting theory. And, you know, through four weeks, we're just now getting what it's like to play in these Sometimes empty stadiums, you know, they yeah. still had 22,000 in Dallas. And I know for the Kansas City game on Monday night, there was a lot of, well, there's only 11,000 people here or 17,000, whatever it was. But, you know, listen to the noise that they're making. And it was like, OK, that that's a bit of an oversell because yeah, I mean, they, they might have been used. I mean, I'm not like, like do you think this possibly might have been using Bill Polian's old soundtrack on the, on the broadcast there? There might have been a little bit of that. I didn't hear anybody slamming their hands in the booth or anything like that the way old polian used to when it went sideways on his old indianapolis teams but it, it's all a big adjustment and and I, it, it's not just tackling like normally there would be well you know why are offensive play well you know defenses have trouble tackling blah, blah blah i'm not saying that's not an issue we have people that are cold bird running by guys i mean we have people that you know the the aaron Rodgers touchdown throw to aaron jones i mean he literally could have thrown it left-handed underhand and it still would have gotten there in time for aaron jones to then just take that step into the end zone for the touchdown so we've got blown coverages communication issues bad tackling you know, there's a little bit of that going on everywhere, but I just think with offenses knowing where they're going, and if you've yeah. got a great trigger man who can help get that group in and out of situations the way they need to. I mean, look, one of the other things that gets highlighted too, Bert, with no no crowd, is when somebody changes a play, it is much more noticeable now when the right. quarterback does the stop down because you can, you know, hear you could hear some of the you can hear some of the calls now. Some yeah. teams have had to go to, you know, the old touch the helmet and stuff like that or come up with some mock calls. Like we used to have a we used to have a knock defense call, right? So the quarterback yeah. like when I played 
and the quarterback standing, it's a knock, and you hear the defense go, it's a knock, it's a knock, and we'd steamroll right over them because they didn't realize we had the numbers to one side. And I know that's little and picayune, but when you add that up over the course of 75 plays in a game for an offense, they're, they're going to have the advantage on the defense at times, and um, I, I very much find this interesting. Now, we went through four weeks. I'll be curious to see what the next four weeks are like. And I right, know we you, have the, you, have, you have like the second adjustment now. There you where, go. Yep. I mean, I do think that there's like pieces of this. Where, where, so I was talking to a, an executive last night who said to me, I thought this was interesting too, like specific to 2020. Remember all the passing camps in the spring that the quarterbacks were putting together? Yep. yep. So he said to me, he's like, Dude, he was like, our core, our quarterback was like organizing stuff. Our offensive guys were getting together like every like daily basis at this high school. He's like, our defensive guys weren't doing anything. He's <laughs> like, he's like, he's like, and I think that's the way it was everywhere. Like, you know, like this because of the quarterback putting together. So, like, you know, I think that that could be part of it. Um, you know, and then I mean, like, I think that there is the the fact that you don't have preseason tape, and like, I thought this was an interesting point that someone else brought up to me was like. It's not everything, but like when there's a new system somewhere, it's like you at least get like a little something in the preseason, you know, like there's at least something there and now you have nothing, you know? And so with places that were running new offenses, it was a little hard to get a beat on it. All right. We're jumping to my third takeaway right now. Um, Washington uh, on, on Wednesday morning made the decision to bench Dwayne Haskins, go to Kyle Allen. Um, and you know, look, like everybody knows how, where I went to school and how I feel about Dwayne and, and all the rest of it. I, I will say this. I do think I, I do like, and there was justification behind the move. Like he did not have a good enough grasp of the offense. Um, the other 10 guys in the huddle, like, you know, I think you have to do a service to them. And, you know, if you can't, if, if the other guy, Kyle Allen's more capable of running the offense and getting more out of the other 10 guys in the huddle, that's gotta be a factor in the way you look at this. I will say this though. I think that this is this highlights again how important investment is in a quarterback, right? And how important it is for a quarterback to know that the people who are coaching him, who are leading him, have his back. And I think Ron Rivera's done his best to give Dwayne that, but I think the reality of the situation is that Ron Rivera, Scott Turner, the people in that building, even like the team president, Jason Wright. Uh, like those guys weren't there when Dwayne Haskins was drafted. And so it's a lot different. Like, and I, this is like sort of like, I think just an interesting thing to watch with every one of these quarterbacks. It's a lot different when you draft a guy and now your next on the line, the guy's success or failure is tied to your own, right? Like that's different than inheriting a guy. And so it's like, you know, like in Buffalo, like Josh Allen, right? He brought up Josh Allen. Like Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean have full accountability for Josh Allen. They drafted him. They brought him in there. And you know what? A big reason why he's developed is because they are invested in him, right? Versus like, say, Sam Darnold in New York, where they've got a GM and a head coach who inherited Sam Darnold. So do you think they're going to hesitate to draft Trevor Lawrence in April if they finish 2-14 and 14 and get the first overall pick? No. no, because they can go to the owner and they can say, you know what? That wasn't my pick. That was someone else's pick. Now I'm getting my guy. I'm bringing my guy in here. And that's assuming Gase is going to be there, which I guess is a big assumption at this point. But I do think it's like an important like piece of it. Just from a human, just from a human nature standpoint, you're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to, you're going to give it like a little bit extra. Um, you're going to give it a little bit more when, you know, it's a guy that you drafted and brought into the building. Well, I think there's a couple of layers to this. Number one, 
finally someone is in there who has the chutzpah to look at the owner and say, shut up. Because why is Dwayne Haskins there? If we're to believe what we've read, it's because the owner got yeah. all hot and horny for him and then turned around and drafted Jamarcus Russell, which is the way that I viewed Haskins, and I'll get to him in a minute. But there's someone there who will finally tell the owner, no, you're wrong. And Ron, and look, we know that the owner has been neutered. He's under investigation. And yep. Ron Rivera is at a point in his coaching life where he can tell the the owner, hey, man, I respect you, but you're a million percent wrong here, and here's why. Um, so that you like that, that hasn't happened in Washington in, what, a decade, maybe, if not more, in terms of telling the owner, dude, you're wrong on this. And then there is the actual player himself. And I'm, I, I know where you went to school, and you and I have talked about Dwayne Haskins a little bit, but, you know, last year with the whole – man, you put me in, we're going to do this, and then you get me in there, we're going to do that. And I understand confidence, and they say, all right there, Chief, here you go. Here's your football team. Go ahead and lead them. And he has completely turned it out. To me, the only mistake they didn't make in drafting this player was that they didn't take him number one overall like the Raiders did a bunch of years ago with Jamarcus Russell and end up having to owe the guy a lot of money. This is not someone who is going to be here long term. And to your point, they're either going to be so bad, like the Jets, that they'll be in position to draft Trevor Lawrence. Or what is that head coach who has some power they're more likely to do? Maybe he'll turn to another move quarterback who just happens to be playing up north, who he's got a relationship with. Up the with. I-95 corridor. That's yeah. right. So you draft your new guy. You sign yourself maybe a Cam Newton for – a two- or a three-year deal. You sell him on the head coach because he already knows him, and then you kind of patchwork that thing up. So to me, this is the beginning of the rebuild that Washington probably should have been engaged in two years ago, and now Ron Rivera will be the guy to look the owner in the face and say, no, 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 here's why you need to do it this way. How about you let us handle the football? You go deal with trying to keep your football team getting taken away from yeah, it's um, it's gonna be interesting to watch. And again, like I, I like, there's no question. Dwayne had some ha some growing up to do. I still think there's ability there, um, but there's no question he had some growing up to do. And he's definitely like, based on the first four games, not there yet. What do you got for your last takeaway of the week, Gresh? Aaron Rodgers is damn good, but I understand why Green Bay did what they did, and it, it, you know. Could they have drafted someone that could have helped Aaron Rodgers who would come in and be a first-round pick? Maybe so. But number one, lighting the fuse under old A-Rod ain't the worst thing in the world, and clearly that is what it's done given the way he's played. Yep. I mean, he is one or two in MVP voting if you really look at the numbers and the way that guy's led that offense. Uh, but look, Green Bay is such a different animal. They don't have an owner who, like, we just got done talking about Washington, right? What yep. has that owner done in the past? Ooh, let me put together the super team. Let me go sign Deion Sanders. Let me go sign this guy. Let me go sign this big name or that guy, or I fall in love with this player. Whereas in Green Bay, they don't have that, that guy who has the emotion attached to the football team who also can go grab his checkbook and say, yeah, I'll give this guy a $30 million signing bonus or I'll give this guy X amount of money and guarantees and we can put it in that escrow account and all that whatnot. I mean, the way 
that the ownership is kind of set up nowadays in the NFL with some of those restrictions on how you have to put money in escrow and things like that. If you give out guarantees, you know, for a team like the Green Bay Packers, who doesn't have a sugar daddy owner, uh, that that can be a tough go. So I can understand why they wanted to if they really like Jordan Love and they're thinking, all right, Rogers only got a couple years left. How do we keep this team from completely dipping? We go draft the quarterback in the first round and we have our guy in waiting. And you could argue that in the now it's flawed strategy. But if we're sitting here five years from now when Aaron Rodgers is old or decides to unplug or go somewhere else, you know, the Green Bay Packers, you would hope they pick the right guy and would be able to maintain some level of long-term success considering there are 31 teams that do things one way and they're the team that has to do it another way. I mean, to me, it's like, and, and here's the thing. Like, so I think there are like, there are a number of different benefits. Okay. Cause really there are three, th- I would say three things and you, and you, and you, you hit on one of them. And the first one is obvious, right? Which is like, I don't think it's a mistake that like Tom Brady started winning championships again when Jimmy Garoppolo walked in the building, you know? And like, if that's what you got out of Tom Brady, if you got like just a little bit better version of Tom Brady, as a result of that, and that was the guy who led you back from you know a ten point deficit against Seattle in the Super Bowl, then a twenty five point deficit against Atlanta in the Super Bowl. Wasn't that worth it? Wasn't yeah. that worth the second round pick? Mm-hmm. You wound up with three more championships. So if that's if you get like just a little bit of an uptick, the sort of uptick the Patriots got from Brady in Rodgers, then I think it's one hundred percent worth the pick because it's an end of the first round pick. Number two. Um, there's the one scenario here is that he winds up being, you know, Aaron Rodgers' successor, which is a great, which would be great if you if you develop him and you think like this guy can be the next guy and you got a tough decision to make three years from now, then that's a good problem to have. That's the problem they had with in 2008 when Brett Favre tried to come back and the bleep hit the fan. And that summer there was that whole drama over whether or not they're trading Brett, whatever, all of that. That was a good problem to have. It turned out because the end result was you wound up having a quarterback for the next 15 years in Aaron Rodgers. All right. So if that's the result, that's a good result. The third result is that, you know, the, or the second result is that you wind up developing Jordan Love, you give him some preseason action over the next couple of years, and then Aaron Rodgers is still playing well, and you deal him like New England dealt Garoppolo, mm-hmm. right? Like so, and then you're getting draft capital back for him. So now you've given your, you've gotten yourself what three years of quality depth, of potentially an answer at the position, and. You're getting you're getting capital back for him in the long run, and so I think like all of those scenarios, like like the, th- those two scenarios are great scenarios to look at, like where it's like, yes, this is going to be worth it, and the third piece of it that you're going to get more out of the starting quarterback, to me makes it logical, and it's like the most important position. Like I know Aaron would have loved to have like a Brendan Ayuk or someone like that, like right. But I think you almost get as much out of it because, you know, you've motivated your starter and you've potentially given yourself a future, an answer in the future. And at the very least, like, you know, you hope that you can develop the guy, the guy into, you know, into the type of player where you can get some capital back for him. And look at what Green Bay has done in the past. Unless they're bringing in Bill O'Brien as the general manager, uh, their history of training quarterbacks has been pretty good. I mean, you go all the way back to what was it? Aaron Brooks, Matt Hasselback, Matt Flynn, uh, Mark Brunel. And I know we're going back to the Holmgren days, but in terms of a strategy specific to that organization, I think something you highlighted right there is really good that if Aaron Rodgers 
outlives what they think would be his NFL lifespan. They've proven that they can turn around and get some good currency for their quarterbacks. And I think that's a really good point. It's an angle of that that I didn't think about. But you go back to the mid-90s, the Packers. Well, Ron Wolf, yeah, like yeah. draft a quarterback every year. They've been loading and flipping quarterbacks forever up there. Mark and- Brunel. Aaron Brooks, yeah, Matt yeah. Hasselbeck, Matt Hasselbeck, Ty Detmer, and oh, I forgot about they. I forgot they traded. It, let me tell you, if you got a fourth round pick for Ty Detmer, you probably should have been the NFL General Manager of the Year that year. He was an electric college player, though. Like that was like like those late night games back in the day. He was an electric. Co- I played for Norm Chow at BYU, I believe. Right, Lavelle Edwards and, and Norm Chow way back in the day. Let me tell you, one of as a part of one of my early years as a member of the Degenerati, I used to look at. Boise State and the whack, and they would say, just bet the overs in the whack, and you'd be okay. But BYU was another one of those teams, like, right. oh, it's the it's the midnight Eastern start out at Hawaii against, you know, whatever Brennan was out there at that time who who was uh flinging the pill, or and and all of a sudden you'd be like, Ooh, what's that late night score? BYU 57, Hawaii 45 in a shootout on the you know and Ty Detmer with Ty Detmer with five hundred yards passing. Yep. I I hope hopefully hopefully at some point we get out of the coronavirus and we can get back to those sorts of things. We're off to a flying start here, Gresh. Appreciate you coming out. We're going to have Gresh in every week for the takeaways and like really, really happy that you're going to be a part of this going forward, dude. You're very kind. And and thank God you have no other friends who would do this with you. (laughs) All right. With that, we'll we'll be right back after this with our special guest. All right, we're going to bring back one of uh, one of our favorite guests and a uh, good buddy of mine, um, guy I've done television with for the last two years, and we're bringing him in this week because I think he can give us some special insight into what is and has been the biggest news story of the week, and that's the firing of Bill O'Brien um, as head coach and general manager in Houston, and he is former Patriots linebacker Ted Johnson, and Ted... Um, a lot of people may not know this, but was in Houston. You're from Houston originally, right? Correct. And he was in Houston, um, doing Houston sports radio from 2012 to 2018. So while Ted was there, he saw the hire of Bill O'Brien was there for the first few years of Bill O'Brien was there for the drafting of Deshaun Watson. And so Ted, let's just start here. Um, when you saw the news yesterday, obviously you're getting ready. I think probably like I was to, to do TV and all of that last night. Um, what was your first reaction? You know, it was, I, I wasn't completely surprised. Uh, it was, it was still kind of a little bit startling to see because, you know, Bill's been there for a long time and was recently given a, a new uh, big extension. So um, for those reasons, there was a little bit of, you know, kind of just shock, but at the end of the day, Bert, not really surprised. I, you know, you just, just listening and uh, kind of talking to some of my friends down in Houston, you saw this coming. I know, I believe the first three opponents for the Texans were pretty daunting opponents. I mean, I believe yep. it was Ravens, the, the the Chiefs, and I think they played the Steelers. So they That's started right. out zero three, right? Yep. The the you know he was let's face it, he was already on the hot seat going into this season. Expectations were so high uh, for Bill O'Brien going into the season, and so you know the first three games you can maybe not coming away with a win, you can maybe understand, but when you lose to the Minnesota Vikings in week four, considering they didn't even have practice all week because of uh, the COVID restraints, that was probably, that was the final straw. So it was, it it was kind of building up for this, Bert. It really, really was um, that down there, they're, they're 
everything in Houston is all about the Houston Texans. People love that team. And so there was just a ton of pressure on him to perform. Considering what has happened in the last couple of years, he has traded away a lot of the future draft picks to get guys in there to win now. Uh, the two trades for uh, with Laramie Tunsil last year and Kenny Stills, um, they gave away a lot of uh, draft equity in that. Trading away Jadavian Clowney, who was the first overall pick, could not work it out with Jadavian Clowney, um, who was supposed to be at the time, you know, five years ago, Bert, a transcendent player. Things didn't work out with him. And then, of course, when you trade away DeAndre Hopkins, who was, you know, the best receiver since Andre Johnson um, to, the, to the Cardinals, people are going to expect you to win right now when you trade, uh, when you make those kind of trades. And so it just, he didn't get done. I mean, he had, you know, theoretically, he had success. I mean, he won like four, I think, uh, four division titles when he was there. But when he got to the playoffs, it just, uh, you know, he just couldn't get it done. And so uh, people, I guess, it just the pressure was just too much from a PR standpoint. Calvin there, I felt, I guess, felt like he had to make it make a move. You have relationships down there. How do you think he was perceived inside the building by players, by coworkers? Like, how do you think he was? How do you think people saw him in there? You know, I, th I think for the most part, you know, people people liked Bill. Um, I think they really did. You know, does he maybe have a little bit of an edge? You know, maybe is he, you know, can maybe theoretically be at times, uh, you know, abrasive perhaps. But for the most part, everything I heard is that he was he was a really good guy. So I, don't, I was a little bit surprised, I'm not going to lie, that to hear that him and DeAndre Hopkins didn't have – of uh, the best uh, relationship, um, that that oh that kind of surprised me when I heard that news. Uh, that kind of started you know coming out at the, the beginning of the off season. Um, so, but I everything I had heard, Bert, is that he was uh, was fairly was well liked. I think he's kind of an old school guy, and, and so the new school you know athlete, you know the guys like Jadavian Jade, Clowney and him didn't maybe see eye to eye. So there was maybe some issues there, but um, everything I heard, buddy, was was that. You know, he, guys liked him, and guys liked playing for him. And so that was that was the understanding I had. How big, like, uh, how big an issue do you think this the the, the drama was? You know, because obviously it, it was what it was between him and Rick Smith, and that was pretty well established even before Rick yep. was fired there. And then you know, with Brian Gain, it was sort of like that was the guy that he okay, like this is the guy we're matching him up with, and then he gets fired. Like, like when you when you go back to like being in Houston day to day and sort of seeing all this unfold, like if you're the owner, how big a part of making a move like this is all the drama that was going on inside the building? There was a, there was a ton of drama, a ton of drama, and, and from the very from the very beginning, the first year when Bill O'Brien was coupled up with Rick Smith, everything seemed to be okay, and then I think in in the second year that Bill O'Brien was there, things started to go south. And the feeling was, was that there was a, you know, Cal McNair, the, the son of Bob McNair, who's now since passed away, the former owner, you know, the, the feeling was that there was an alignment with Cal and Rick Smith. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but that Bill was trying to, you know, maybe, uh, you know, create a situation so that, you know, he had more power. He had more say in things. I think Rick Smith had a ton of power and he wasn't, maybe, you know, help, helping create the team that Bill O'Brien had in his mind. So there was a power struggle there. And so ultimately, um, you know, the feeling was Bill O'Brien won out on that because Rick Smith did step aside after that second year that he was there with Bill. And everybody thought he got 
his guy, that being Brian Gain, I believe he came from the Buffalo Bills to take over as general manager. It looked like that was that pairing was going to really work out. And boy, that that didn't last very long. One year. So, you know, yeah. and, then, and then he became his the general manager himself for a year. And then this past year, he brings in Jack Easterby from the Patriots, which a lot of people, you know, uh, question because of his experience or lack thereof as being, you know, kind of, uh, you know, a power broker at the highest levels in this league. So it's, he's never really had a sidekick, if you will, general manager that has worked out. And he's also churned through offensive coordinators too, Bert. And that was a big, a big factor. And, and a big reason I think he probably stuck around as long as he did. My feeling is Bert is when Deshaun Watson, because he had to play, he had to play with, you know, coach quarterbacks like Brock Osweiler and Tom Savage, um, you know, in, uh, Brian Hoyer, Ryan, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Brian Hoyer, Ryan Mallett. I mean, just this. Uh, it was right. It, it was the mediocrity was 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 unbelievable down there. And then they get Deshaun Watson. He comes in, okay. And I'll never forget. So Deshaun Watson gets drafted in 2017. There was it was a quarterback competition between him and Tom Savage. He decided to start the season off with Tom Savage. And do you know how long Tom Savage lasted in the starting lineup? I think it was a game. No, it was like two quarters, right? Two quarters, buddy. Yeah. So, so two quarters. So Tom Savage gets pulled after a week after uh, against the Jacksonville Jaguars in week one at halftime. Deshaun comes in, buddy, and lights the world on fire. And, and t- you got to understand, at that point, Bill O'Brien was, you know, he was not in favor with the fan base. And it looked like, you know, things weren't going to work out for Bill O'Brien until Deshaun Watson comes in. And that's second half of the first game of his rookie year. And that, and then he lights it up for the next six and a half weeks. It, you know, starts getting all these offensive records. And you saw this, all the creativity in the offense you hadn't seen before under Bill O'Brien. Okay. And so now, I mean, everybody's feeling really good about pairing Bill O'Brien with Deshaun Watson, the quarterback of the future. And then, of course, Deshaun Watson tears his ACL in practice going into week eight of his rookie year. And then it really slowed the momentum down, uh, of course. And a lot of people said, well, you got to give Bill O'Brien a chance to really see what he can do with Deshaun once he gets back healthy and full speed. And so he's got his chance to kind of show what he can do with Deshaun and, you know, to start this season, you know, Deshaun's, you know, the last couple of years has been healthy and showing kind of what he can do. But to get off to an 0-4 start when I think expectations were as high as they've ever been down there, considering all the trades he made and kind of all the, you know, the moves that he made yeah. behind the scenes, there was expectations that he was going to, you know, this was the year. And to go 0-4 was just unacceptable. So, like, I, and I want to get to the Jack Easterby part of this. And I and I do think, like, you're right. Like, Deshaun not playing well through four weeks, I think, was absolutely a factor. Because if you're the owner, you're probably looking at it and saying, okay, is my quarterback developing? Um, right. You know, that said, like, how do you think, like, because I, you know, and I guess I'd take you all the way back to your rookie year, right? Because you saw a lot of stuff, I think, your first two years in the league, first three years in the league, right? Um, where there was some discord in the building, there was some, there were some issues, right? Like because there was Parcells, and then you know, and, and Bobby Greer, and oh, yeah. um, and, uh, and and Robert Kraft, obviously over the top of them. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that, how does that affect a building? Like when you when you know as a player that that's going on, and that there's all sorts of maybe weird stuff happening over the top of of you. Um, 
how does that sort of affect everything? Yeah, it, it, it's going to have it's going to have an impact. It's hard to quantify. It's hard to quantify what that impact is going to be. But if you feel dysfunction in the front office and between the coaching staff, or you feel that the the two entities aren't on the same page, Bert, it, that that feeling permeates throughout the whole locker room. You just kind of feel it. You know, we don't really talk about it that much, but you just feel like you know what this uh, you know we're not we're not we're not on the right track here and that there's if if the front office and the head coach aren't on the same page you're gonna feel that um and it's it's very unusual to kind of to see that because you're just not used to seeing maybe in your years of playing football my years of seeing you know a discord between the you know, upper management uh partners so it, it just impacts the team it's again i'm not sure exactly how you just know but there's just kind of a dark cloud over the organization that not everybody's pulling in the same direction that some, you know, you know, some people have different ideas on, on how to get to the same place. And then ultimately you don't feel real good uh, about the direction your team is going in with, with all of that happening. So it's there. We don't talk about it as players. We just kind of go do our jobs, but ultimately we all have a feeling that that could eventually uh, be a detriment to our overall success. Well, because I like would think too, like when you see all of that going on, like you're probably thinking to yourself, like, okay, like, what does this mean for me? Because this person brought me in, and this person's responsible for me being here. So if he's gone, and right. this person over here is now in charge, then what, like, like, what is that going to mean for my future? I would think that like, all of those things probably come into your head, right? It's, so, it's funny you say that, Bert, because you know we, I've talked, I've always talked about this, um, kind of like no wanting to know in the facility. Who put their stamp of approval on you? Like, yeah. who was it? Like, was it, you know, like for me, you know, when I got drafted in back in 1995, you had, you had Bobby Greer, you had, uh, as the, I guess, the, the director of uh, player personnel slash general manager. And then you had Charlie Army, who was, uh, you know, high ranking in the, uh, in the organization. You had Bill Parcells. And I've always wanted to know, was it Bobby Greer? Was it Charlie Army? Was it Bill, Bill Parcells that put the final stamp on me? Um, you, you, this, as a player, you kind of want to know who's got your back in those, in those, uh, you know, in, in the offices. And so I think that's something that a lot of players think about. If, if the guy that, you know, if a guy that, uh, is, is on the outs or is not getting along with the head coach is the guy that put his stamp on you to be there. You do worry about your future because if that guy's maybe, uh, you know, on his way out, how does that impact your, your career personally? So those are always thoughts that players have. How does it affect me? when there's discord in the upper levels and who might go and who might stay. That's a very real issue uh, that guys go through uh, when this stuff starts to happen. Did you ever figure out who put his, put his stamp on you? I asked, I asked, <laughs> I, I got an opportunity to talk to Charlie army who, by the way, you know, Charlie did a hell of a job. He left the Patriots and went to the Rams was general manager. Yeah. He won their super bowl. I believe it was at 1999. Yeah. Built the greatest show on turf. There you go. So Charlie, Charlie, I, I Charlie, I asked Charlie that question. He's like, it was me, Johnson. I'm the one <laughs> that put the stamp on you. And, uh, and so Charlie, Charlie was great, but he was he was the guy that I was told. I think him and then Al Gro. Al Gro was the defensive coordinator, linebackers coach for the Patriots at the time. Those two guys, I think, were the ones that uh, I had in there, uh, kind of trumpeting for me for me to get drafted there. So, so all right. So, like, like just to build on that, how does that? 
manifest on the field? Like, how does that show up on the field? Do you think? And and like you went through it again with Pete Carroll, and obviously there was dysfunction there. And Pete's talked about this openly, of course, like why things didn't work during his three years in New England. But like as a player, like how does that manifest on the field? If like everybody's sort of like looking to figure out who has their back. Yeah, that's you know that's it's it's a it's a bit of a, an unsettling thing, you know. And if you if you kind of know. If, if if lines are drawn in the sand and there it's it's obvious that there's the the, the the you know the front you know the general manager and the head coach aren't on the same page it can you know it, it can manifest in ways like you can see there's a power struggle like with the head because a lot of times these head coaches and these coaches I mean they play mental games they can do things to to make you feel like you know you know they're, they're, you're not really one of their guys meanwhile the, the general manager wants you playing and the head coach doesn't, you can kind of maybe feel that. And so it's, um, again, it's hard to quantify, but that goes on all the time, buddy. But it's like, so like, it's just as simple as like, people just aren't on the same page then. Yeah. And everybody's kind of like, if stuff like that's happening, everybody's sort of looking out for their own, which doesn't help anything, right? You know, it's funny. I had I had uh, Pete Carroll. There was an instance, you know, where Pete lasted three years here with the Patriots. But at the end, it was almost like it was – he. It was a very kind of visible thing that everybody kind of knew that his time might be coming to an end. And he was almost uh, verbal in, in kind of telling us all, yeah, this is I'm – not, I'm not sure how long, much longer I'm going to be here kind of thing. And, and brought it out kind of to the team. And that was a different dynamic. It was, it was kind of like he, him, Pete, actually kind of voicing to all of us you know, in, in, in an indirect way, what was going on with him in the front office. And so we all kind of felt it, um, you know, what Pete, what Pete, you know, here's the thing, what Pete learned is like, you can, you, you can you want us all having your back, but man, at the end of the day, we don't have the decision. We don't make the decisions, buddy. We all like you as a, as a person, you're a great guy and a great coach, but we're not the ones that are going to, you know, help you keep your job. That's, that's the people above our pay grade, man. Yeah. It's crazy too. Cause I remember sitting in Pete's office in Seattle and, um, he took, told the story about the back stairwell there. Um, and what, I, and when I brought it up, I remember like he, like, like his face dropped, you know, <laughs> it was just like, like that back stairwell was his worst nightmare because, you know, the players knew and like, you know, the I guess all of you guys knew like, Hey, if I got a problem with the coach, I can take it upstairs, which yeah. like, like that is, you know, I mean, that's how you get to a situation like the Texans are in. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that, that's what you, you that's what you can't have is if you got if you got the kind of the the uh the general manager backdoor politicking you know with players um to undermine the head coach you if that's what's going on you you have you had dysfunction and my feeling is there's you know there's there's powerful uh players on that Texans JJ Watt as you know is mm-hmm. he, he's he, he he yields a lot of power in that organization um and Deshaun Watson does too I don't know if this for a fact. I have no idea. I can speculate. My feeling is those two guys were probably consulted. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't have any evidence to, to say to, to actually know for 100 percent, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were consulted on on that decision before it happened. Just what they thought their overall feelings were with uh, with Bill O'Brien. So um, I wouldn't be surprised with the power those two guys have in that town if they were consulted on that. OK, let me ask you this then. How does somebody like Jack Easterby come to that, come into that amount of power? Going from being a team chaplain in Kansas City to being a character coach in New England 
to now, like being the top ranking football official in Houston. How does I'd that love happen? To, I'd love to meet Jack Easterby because I feel like I would just be swept up in his charming charisma. <laughs> I, 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 it's yeah. the only thing I can think of. Is got, he's got to have this way about how he uh, talks to you that you just all of a sudden there's this aura about Jack Easterby because he, he has raised, rise through the ranks so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. And starting out with as a team chaplain and then basically parlaying that into, you know, being a, a key decision maker in football operation type stuff. This fast is, is fascinating to me. So he must have um, a lot of charm and charisma in a way with people and the way he communicates is, is, is in a way that is, is maybe, you know, I don't know how to describe it, but uh, seductive and yeah. charming and charismatic to kind of get people to uh, bring him into the inner circle and give him as much power as he has. So I'd like to meet the guy because yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm thinking that if I did meet him, I'd be blown away by, by what, you know, would come out of his mouth. So um, it is, it is shocking. And it's probably one of the more fascinating kind of rises to the top of, of anybody you'll see in this league. You know, what's so interesting about it too, Ted is like that, you know, I'd heard, I remember hearing, and, and you may have, I'm, I like you were down there. So you probably heard this too, but I, I'd heard like part of the bond between Cal McNair and Rick Smith was based on religion and was based on, how devout they were in their beliefs and that they sort of came together over that. And there was a really strong relationship there because of that. And so maybe it makes sense that this is the guy, the Jack Easterby is the guy that has the owner's ear now, you know, because they have something to bond over there because that's why Jack Easterby is there. And the, like the part of that, that's part of the package when you, when you hire somebody like Jack Easterby. That's in, if that's the case, then, then so be it. Um, you know, you just, that's the one thing is you got to be very careful as an owner. Um, you know, let's face it, a big part of the uh, main part of the success for the Patriots dynasty that I was so great, grateful to be a part of was the ability of the owner, Robert Kraft, to identify, you know, what was a good leadership style and it was going to be the right guy to lead his team. And that, you know, let's face it, when he, traded he made a trade for uh, Bill Belichick with the Jets to get him to come there that was an unpopular decision and nobody thought that was a good decision but Robert Kraft saw something that maybe a lot of people didn't and obviously it turned out to be the right decision a lot of these owners in the NFL Bert you know they go with gut feelings and they you know a lot of times they might be successful in, in their businesses obviously but when it comes to football might not see you know kind of see their future and maybe make the best decisions with, with the, with hiring coaches. But, um, you know, and they, and they go with people they feel most comfortable with, even though they might not be the right guy. Who knows if that's the case with Cal McNair and, um, and Jack Easterby, that remains to be seen. You confident that Cal, like knowing what you know about Cal McNair, like how do you think he handles this going forward? Oof. You know, that's, it's, it's a very good question because I'm not really, as sure about the style of Cal McNair, his dad, Bob McNair, yeah, patient man, very thoughtful man, a sensitive man. Like he he would he gave coaches maybe longer tenures uh, than they maybe had deserved uh, in the past. So Dom Capers had a long kind of leash. Um, you know, Gary Kubiak was there for Gary, eight years, right? Gary Kubiak was there for a very long time. 
um, and, and may, probably maybe been there a lot longer than he should have. And then, and then Bill O'Brien, of course. So I'm not so sure if Cal falls in, in the, kind of the same category as his dad. Will he have a lot of patience with these guys? Um, I'm, I'm not so sure. So his, you know, his uh, identity as an owner uh, still has yet to be, you know, determined as far as what his style is as an owner. But if he's anything like his daddy, as John McClain would say, his daddy, then uh, he's going to have patience, he's going to be thoughtful, and he's going to give whoever he hires next um, a long time to kind of prove themselves. Okay. Last thing for me then. Um, you know that the – I mean, like you obviously were in New England at a time when like this was – like, like what, what's what's happened there over the last 20 years was was being built. And so you saw like a lot of the assistant coaches come through the ranks. In fact, one of them, you know, was your defensive coordinator, who's now the interim coach in Houston, Romeo Cornell, Charlie Weiss, another one. Obviously, guys like Josh McDaniels and, and Eric Mangini were young guys back then. Can you put your finger on a reason why so many ex-Belichick assistants? And I think what's interesting about it is some of the GMs have actually it's worked out with some of the GMs, um, but why? Belichick's assistant coaches haven't been more successful than they have been based on where they're coming from and the institutional knowledge they're bringing with them from New England. Yeah, that's, 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 that's the, that's the question. Million dollar question. No. And, and the, you know, that's the, the answer to that is, is a, is an elusive one. I think, you know, the, the one thing I'll say about bill is there's many things I can say about bill, but when it comes to this question specifically, I, I think, you know, Bill's so emotionless. He is, he's a killer, man. He's an absolute killer. And he will do whatever it takes uh, to get what he wants. And he doesn't care who he hurts, um, who he, you know, disappoints, who he upsets. And so he's just, he's going to do what he wants to do. There's coaches, a lot of those coaches that you mentioned, you know, they, they're good guys. You know, I don't know if they have that killer instinct where that, where they can just shut off all emotion um, you know, they like to connect. Hey, Bill O'Brien likes to connect with his players. Romeo Cornell, Cornell likes to connect with his players. There's an interpersonal kind of uh, thing going on between those guys. You know, even, you know, Charlie Weiss to a, to a certain degree was that way. Um, you know, Bill O'Brien, you know, he, he's, he's got he's, his wife and his family are awesome. He's a family man. He has perspective. He has a, he has a child who has special needs that uh, he goes home to every day. And, and, you know, I think he's just, I think coaches that play for Bill, they, they don't, it's hard to be as successful as Bill Belichick when you are, you know, when you, when you have emotion, when you kind of let emotion at times dictate your decisions. And that's, what's always separated Bill. He's an emotionless guy who will not let his feelings get in the way. He does not get any kind of attachment whatsoever to any of his players. And that's why he makes, he can make these tough decisions. And I think that's ultimately what separates him from all his assistants, because you can, you know, you can try and bring all the different game plan, uh, you know, things and, and how you look at the game and how you scout and how you put a roster together and try and emulate that with, as how Bill would. But at the end of the day, are you going to make those tough decisions, those emotionless type of cold-blooded business decisions to better your team? I think most of them can't, and that's why they're not as successful as Bill. 
So I got an interesting story there. I um, So I was sitting with Bill, and this was 2008, 2008 maybe, somewhere in there. And, um, and so I had, uh, you know, he and I had kind of like, I was doing this big Q and a with him. And so we were talking about some non-football stuff and I said, you know, Bill, somebody I, I talked to can uh, compared you to, to Carnegie and, you know, he kind of gave me a weird look and he's like, like, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, you know, like they basically said that, um, they basically said that like Carnegie what and he's you know for those who don't know was kind of like one of these you know kind of he was a uh, like a, a titan of the steel industry in Pennsylvania and so he said so um so he's like what do you mean by that I said well like the people around Carnegie said that he was a great guy and he's very charitable and a family man and everybody around him really loved him and everybody had these great stories about how he's not really the way you think he is but then he got to work and when he was at work. It was, he was a certain way and he was disciplined about it. And that's why he was successful. And he didn't cut anybody any slack and things had to be done a certain way. And, you know, when I explained this to Bill and he just stopped, like, like after I stopped kind of explaining it, he looked at me and paused for five seconds and says, well, it's awfully flattering to be compared to Carnegie. And that was it. <laughs> and and it was like like I was like okay like I think I nailed that one like I think I I I think he agrees with that and I, it was so interesting to me because I brought that story up to one of your former teammates Drew Bledsoe and Bledsoe mentioned to me he said yeah you know like when I was um he was like he was like when I went back to be in, to be inducted in the Patriots Hall of Fame and I think this was like 2011 he's like he hadn't talked to Bill at all since the since everything went down and you know he had he had ill will and. He figured that this was like just a relationship that was never going to be prepared. And the Patriots are doing an in-stadium practice that day. And he said he was like actually nervous about going up to Bill. <laughs> and so he kind of like he sees Bill from across the field when he gets out to this practice, sheepishly walks across and Belichick gave him a hug and which was totally unexpected. And then just starts asking about his family, asking about his kids playing ball, asking about his wine and said he couldn't have been warmer. And Drew said he was freaking floored. Yeah. But the yeah. lesson he took from it was when you're playing for him, when you're working under his roof, like, like that's, that's work. That's part of his life. Like, and, and it's like you said, just completely emotionless. Like we're here to do a job and that's, that's, and that's it. That's what we're here to do. And it's just a, hey, those two stories, the Carnegie story and then and then Drew kind of just um, you know uh, substantiating that story is is really I think kind of the essence of what makes him different. I really do. Those I mean in, in Bill's just the way he's wired, his ability to kind of just you know not get any real emotional attachment to his players. Although I think the older he's gotten, I think that's changed. I think he's yeah. changed kind of. I think he's lightened up. I think there's guys on that he likes that he gives, I think, uh, contracts to, Bert, that he wouldn't have given to um, earlier in his career. So I think he wants guys that he likes around him, and he wants to take care of certain guys now more than ever as he's gotten older. But the Bill Belichick I knew was that cold-blooded uh, killer that Drew knew. And, 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 and you know what? And good for Bill. Bill's a guy that, look, he, you know what? He, you know, he might – Drew didn't maybe have the best experience with him and obviously got benched, uh, for, you know, uh, in, in, you know, for Tom. And so I know he, you know, he was, he was bitter. But Bill's a guy that he'll come back around and he'll extend that olive branch and he just – and then all of a sudden he's got you back in and you're kind of like, 
right. <laughs> you know, he's he's got that power to do that too, man. And so Bill's Bill's no dummy either. He if he gets an opportunity to maybe kind of make amends with you later on, um, then uh, the, then he's got that ability. Not maybe not with everybody, but with a lot of guys, he'll do that with uh, too for sure. Malcolm Butler, I think Malcolm Butler, him they made amends after that Super Bowl after Malcolm Butler didn't. Uh, yeah. Word was Malcolm said that he reached out to him in the offseason. Right. That they they hashed it out. Well, you know, that was also kind of a, a tactical move from Bill, too. It's like whatever happened between him and Malcolm Butler in that Super Bowl against the Eagles in 2017, he, he doesn't want that story to get out. So it would be who Bill <laughs> yeah. to make nice with Malcolm, and he did. So he's no dummy either, Bert. No question. All right. He's Ted Johnson. Uh, you can catch him uh, with me. And during the week on, on NBC Sports Boston, does a ton of shows up there. Um, and also on the Sports Hub. Yeah, we work in a lot of the same places, me and Ted. Uh, always appreciate you coming out, buddy. All right, bud. My pleasure, man. Talk to you. All right, thanks to Ted. Always great talking to him about Patriots-related stuff, about Houston-related stuff, so we appreciate him coming out. We're going to jump into our fantasy segment right now, um, and we are going to bring in Michael Fabiano of SI.com. As always, Fabs is uh, presented by DraftKings. Fabs, what's going on? A lot. Too much. <laughs> That's right. At this point, it's been, uh, it's been a little bit of an overload here with this COVID-19 situation. And I want to start there before we jump into your picks for the week. Um what do you what has this done for you personally? Like 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 you look at what's happened over the last I guess we're going back like eight days now. Um, you know, looking at the Tennessee outbreak, you know, obviously that winds up pushing the t- Titan Steelers game to midseason. Chiefs Patriots gets pushed back. How has the last the how how have the events of the last eight days wreaked havoc on fantasy and DFS from your perspective? It's it's been tough because first off if the commissioners out there didn't expand rosters, you're going to find out why you should have done that. And I'm in a league right now where, you know, Albert, I might have seven players unavailable to me between bye weeks and COVID-19 situation, mm-hmm. which means I can't set uh, an actual, an actual starting lineup. So there, there are a lot of issues right now. Not only are you dealing with all of these hypotheticals, right? So last week it was, well, what if Patrick Mahomes doesn't play? What if Travis Kelsey doesn't play? What if that game doesn't go down? Then I have to decide, do I bench them? Do I pick up a quarterback off the waiver wire or grab one off my bench and start them ahead of arguably the best quarterback in fantasy football, uh, the best tight end in fantasy football? That's not fair. And to me, if you're a commissioner, you should allow for uh, alternatives to be picked before the games kick on Sundays, because I think we're going to continue to have this sort of situation just in case. And heck, if you have to go to pen and paper and document what the points are, then you got to go to pen and paper and document what the points are. That's sort of the role of the commissioner. You have to do these kind of things, but you're looking at the waiver wire a lot more, Albert. You're trying to make sure that you have all your bases covered, right? So I'll give you an example. So Monday night, we weren't sure if Devontae Adams was going to play. Okay, so that's that's a typical scenario in fantasy football. On a Monday night, not sure if a guy's yeah. going to play. But before the NFL had said, yes, this Kansas City-New England game is going to go, which, by the way, was a huge mistake, uh, hindsight 2020, but I think a lot of us sort of saw that. They shouldn't have played that game. But before we knew that game was going down, you also had to not only try and cover yourself with Adams maybe not playing. Julio Jones was also questionable as well. Yep. 
but you had to figure out, well, I need to add players just in case I don't have, for example, Travis Kelsey, or maybe I won't have Clyde Edwards Hilaire, or maybe I won't have James White. So you're having to do more work on the waiver wire than ever before because of this COVID situation. And that could end up being the situation we're in again. And right now I would say Tennessee and Buffalo question mark. I would say Patriots and Broncos question mark. Mm -hmm. You've got two other teams that are on a buy in green Bay and in Detroit. So it's difficult. I'm guessing it's probably taking the fun out of fantasy football for some people out there. To me, I take it as a challenge, but we're finding out now why you need to expand those rosters and you need to add those injured spots uh, back in the quote unquote preseason. Because now if you've got small rosters, you legitimately might have to drop a player. You might've not otherwise dropped because you have no other choice. What do you think commissioners should do then? You said expand rosters. Is that easy to do? So now it depends on what kind of platform you're on. And I don't even know if any platforms would actually let you go in once the season has started and increase the number of reserve and maybe adding some interest bus. I'm not sure. I don't know all the platforms out there and the dynamics of those platforms. If that's the case and you can do it, and I'm guessing you probably can't in a lot of these, the commissioners either have to, again, go to a pen and paper and tell people, all right, we can't do it on the site, but I'm going to allow everybody to pick up one or two extra players. You're going to send those to me. We're going to use the waivers process through the commissioner. We're going to run it. You're going to add players and you're going to tell me, okay, if the Titans and the Bills and the Patriots and the Broncos are not playing, here are the alternatives that you have that you can utilize because most products will allow you to go in, Albert, after the fact and update scoring. So, for example, if you were going to start Ryan Tannehill and he is not going to play due to the coronavirus and you maybe grab Justin Herbert off the waiver wire, even though you can't do that in a league, you did it through your commissioner, your commissioner can still go in there and give Herbert's points to Tannehill's spot in your starting lineup. It's confusing. It's kind of a pain in the butt. But this is why we told everyone out there in the preseason, add to your rosters, make your rosters bigger, add to your bench spots, increase your injured spots. If you didn't have them, add them. And we're finding out now why that advice was good advice. Honestly, like that might be the best tip you give everybody all like of any of these, right? Like that, because I wouldn't have like, honestly, like I, it's all these challenges that I think people like you probably were paying attention to that a lot of us didn't see coming. So um, let's just right, jump right into it then. Again, presented by DraftKings. Um, Fabs is going to hit us now with his DFS bargains and fades for week five. So let's start off with the quarterbacks. And I've got Tannehill in there as a bargain at $6,000, but I don't know if that game's going to happen. Teddy Bridgewater is a very good play against Atlanta. Their defense has been terrible. He's at 5900 and now I'm a Cowboys fan, and I'm a diehard Cowboys fan for almost 40 years. Yeah, so people don't, so people know that want the visual. I can see the I can see the yes. Zeke jersey in the background. Yes, yes. Uh, and I've got my Cowboys helmet over here. I've got my Cowboys hat right here. I like Daniel Jones this weekend. He's been garbage. Okay, he's been terrible. Maybe to no fault of his own because the Giants are all banged up on the offensive side. But Daniel Jones at $5,400 could be a bargain because the Cowboys defense is that bad. And it's unbelievable that I'm talking about a guy who's basically one of the worst fantasy quarterbacks so far of the season. And he's a potential starter at running back, Jonathan Taylor, David Johnson, 
Damian Harris, all nice bargains this week at wide receiver. If Deontay Johnson plays for the Steelers, I like him at $5,800. Darius Slayton, again, Cowboys, he's at $4,800. You could start him at tight end. Eric Ebron, Ian Thomas, who's got Atlanta, and their defense is just terrible uh, against tight ends at $3,400. And then Jordan Akins, if he's able to go against Jacksonville. Some fades, Jared Goff at $6,500. Joe Burrow uh, against the Ravens at $6,000. And Baker Mayfield, who's basically a game manager, at $5,700. At running back, Miles Sanders, too expensive at $6,500 against the Steelers. Melvin Gordon in the game, we're not sure, is going to be played at $6,400. And then Joe Mixon, as great as he was, Okay, and he was tremendous last week at $6,300 against Baltimore. That's a little bit too rich for my blood. You've got to fade Julio Jones, even if he's going to play this week, because who the heck knows what's going on with him right now. They should probably give him a few weeks off to get 100%. OBJ, who I loved last week and I talked about on this program, Mm -hmm. I fade him this week against the Colts at $6,400. At tight end, Mike Gesicki. Hayden Hurst and Austin Hooper are all fades for me on DraftKings based on their prices. A couple of things that stuck out to me there, too. I can't wait to see Joe Burrow against the Ravens defense. Great test for the rookie Should there. Should be fun, yes. And, man, that Colts defense against the Browns offense is going to be fun to watch, too, because that Colts defense, like, people people need to look at the numbers. They've been off the charts through Very a month. good. I mean, and some people will argue, well, they really haven't played any great teams. The Bears were 3-0 and last week. Right. I mean, and Indianapolis went and in And they there beat the Vikings, and, too, and the Vikings right. have some weapons. Like, right, like Exa- the Vikings, exactly. Yeah. Yep. So Ab- that Colts defense is the top defense in fantasy right now, Albert. Not yet. I mean, all credit to Chris Ballard and Frank Reich and Matt Eberflus. That, that defense can really play, and it doesn't seem like it's a fluke. They've got a bunch of just a bunch of horses on that defense. Right. So we're going to jump in now to your stardom, sit em. Everybody knows the original, the original stardom, sit right. column. That's right. Um, and that's not just for SI. That's anywhere. The original stardom, sit column is Michael Fabiano's. What do you got coming for us this week? This is the 20th year I'm doing this thing, man. 20 yep. years. So uh, Ryan Tannehill, again, if that game goes on, I like the matchup. Justin Herbert's been very good. 20 plus points in two of three games. He's got the Saints on Monday night. Could be a high scoring affair. Starting James Robinson, he's averaging 18 touches and over 110 scrimmage yards per game. Uh, the Texans defense struggling against running backs. Mike Davis has become a virtual must start. I mean, over the last two weeks, Albert, only three running backs have more touches. And Davis is third in targets and fifth in fantasy points among backs at that time. This is not Christian McCaffrey I'm talking about. It's Mike Davis. Uh, DK Metcalf is a must-start. Robbie Anderson is another example of a player getting away from Adam Gase and thriving somewhere else, right? <laughs> He's been really good for Carolina stardom against Atlanta. Evan Ingram has been a disappointment, but I do like the matchup here uh, against my beloved Dallas Cowboys because, well, the Cowboys defense is just not good. And then Hunter Henry, start him on uh, Monday against the Saints. Their defense, the worst in the league against tight ends. Players to sit. Baker Mayfield, he hasn't scored 16 points in a game this season, and the Colts defense is for real. We just talked about that. Carson Wentz at the big catch-up bottle against the Steelers. Don't love the matchup. Mark Ingram's got a good matchup this week, Albert, but the touches are sparse. I mean, he's averaging nine touches a game, and Greg Roman's splitting them up between J.K. Dobbins, Ingram, and Gus Edwards. It's really hard to figure out that backfield. So is the one in L.A. We thought we had it figured out with Daryl Henderson, and then Sean McVay pulled the switcheroo on us and gave Malcolm Brown more snaps and more touches. And now Cam Akers could be back. So good luck trying to predict that backfield. At wide receiver, A.J. Green, right now, he is 92nd in fantasy points among wide receivers. Wow. Despite the big name, he has been usurped by Tyler Boyd and now T. Higgins. T.Y. Hilton is 85th 
among wide receivers in points and 35 wide receivers have more targets. Don't know why. I know they're running the football a ton, but T.Y. is not getting it done. He's not getting the opportunities. Phillip Rivers is also 27th among quarterbacks in targeting wide receivers. That's a crazy stat. Uh, I'd also fade Austin Hooper and Mike Gusecki, which I mentioned in the DFS portion of the segment here. So uh, those are my starts and sits for the week. And guys, got to keep tabs on what's going on with this COVID thing because we could be down. Uh, we're already down two teams due to the bye. We could be down another four teams, which means you're going to have to scramble. No question. Name it kind of stuck out to me. Cam Akers. You kind of forgot about him a little bit. Like, and he's got, he's got ability. Like the, the Rams yeah, are man. excited about, about what he might be able to do. Fabs. I always appreciate you coming out. You guys know where to find Fabs. His start him, sit him, call him up at SI.com. And he's here every week on the Albert Breer show. Really appreciate you coming out Fabs. Anytime my friend. All right. We'll get you your mail right after this. All right, thanks to Fabs, thanks to Ted. As we do every week, even here on the new feed at the Albert Breer Show, we're wrapping things up with our six-pack. You guys know how it works. Every Tuesday, I put the call out for questions on Twitter. If I pick yours, I give you a like. That means I hit that little heart button, and you get an answer here on the podcast. Question number one for week five from Jerry Levine. That's at Jerry Lev. And we're going to combine two questions into one here. Jerry's question is, with this jet season looking like a disaster, if they have one of the top draft picks, do they move on? From Sam Darnold, question number 1A is from Moose Block. That's at Moose underscore Block. If the Jets continue to lose and end up with the first pick in the draft, will Trevor Lawrence stay Clemson for one more year? All right, so I'm going to start with Moose's question first. Trevor Lawrence has actually already said that he's coming out after this year on ESPN Game Day to Tom Rinaldi. Um, and this was, I think, early in September. He basically casually referred to this as his last year in college. He is graduating from Clemson University in December. And so I think just the combination of things here, I think that there would be a higher chance that he would force his way out of a bad situation in the NFL by maybe saying he won't play for Team X, Y, and Z than there is of him going back to Clemson next year, especially with everything that's gone on. I'm not saying that won't change, and I know Jets fans look back at like 1997 and think, what if Peyton Manning had come out of Tennessee and sort of, you know, take that and look at this and say, like, I God, it could happen again 23 years later. I don't think it's very likely at all that Trevor Lawrence goes back to Clemson next year, even if a team like the Jets has the first pick. You know that whoever has the first pick isn't a very good team. That's part of the deal. As for Jerry's question, there is no question in my mind that if the Jets have the number one overall pick, they will trade Sam Darnold. They will draft Trevor Lawrence. And that's not because I have inside information. That's because I understand the way that the NFL looks at Trevor Lawrence. And I'm saying I don't know that I have inside information on that specifically. I do have like inside information generally of like how the NFL feels about this kid. Trevor Lawrence is in the same category as Andrew Luck, as Peyton Manning, as John Elway. Those guys come around around once in a decade. Um, and when one is available to you, you take him. And you worry about the consequences later. And if you want to compare him to the other guys in the class, I'll take you back to 2000. And twelve, the Rams had the second overall pick that year. They wound up they they wound up trading the pick. The Washington Football Team came up to get the pick. They got a bounty of pick. They got a bounty of of draft pick capital back for them. Um, the Rams went forward with Sam Bradford and all those draft picks. And if you remember at the time, the story was well, the Sam that the Rams really love Sam Bradford, and so they're willing to you know 
pass on a, a prospect at the level of, of Robert Griffin III, who's coming off of winning the Heisman at Baylor, and use the picks to build around with Sam Bradford. Well, I was told at the time that if that had been the first overall pick, if they had had the number one pick, they would have taken Andrew Luck and traded Sam Bradford. That's the difference here. Is like with Trevor Lawrence, you know, when again, when a guy like that's available to you, I, it's not fair to the other guy, but I think you, you just have to swallow hard. You have to try and get capital for the other guy, and you have to take the generational prospect. So I absolutely think that if they wind up with the first pick, they would take Trevor Lawrence and trade Sam Sam Darnold. If they wind up with the second or third pick, um, we're talking about something differently, different altogether. On top of that, the Jets do have to sort of make a decision here. Um, you'll have to make a decision this offseason on his fifth-year option. They'll have to make a decision on whether or not they want to pay him long-term. So I think the Jets' quarterback situation as it stands right now, looking forward six months to the draft, is very much in flux. Question number two from Matt Ramos. Um, that's at Matt underscore Ramis. Does Bill O'Brien's firing make it more or less likely that Josh McDaniels will be their less co- their next coach? Um, Matt, I would tell you that I think that this sort of relates back to Jack Easterby, but it also relates to Cal McNair on Jack Easterby on the Jack Easterby level. He is very close with Josh McDaniels. Josh was going to take him to Indianapolis with him um, in 2018. And he's very close with Nick Casario. Nick Casario, of course, was expected to be the Texans' general manager um, in June of 2019 when they fired Brian Gain. Neither of those things happened. The relationships remain. That said, Cal McNair is going to be the one writing the checks in this. And so does he want to sign up for another version of Patriot South? That much I don't know. I also know that these aren't the only close relationships that Jack Easterby has. Um, in football. Another one is with Clemson coach Dabo Swinney, who, as we mentioned earlier, um, was Deshaun Watson's college coach. And so there's all kinds of connections there. So, you know, I, I think that really the answer to your question sort of comes down to Cal McNair and his appetite for launching a sort of Patriot South 2.0. Question number three from Justin A. That's at Justin underscore A12. Do you think the Colts are a contender in the AFC? Yes, Justin, I think they're a contender in the AFC. And let the record show I did pick them to go to the playoffs before the season. And one of the main reasons why, I can't get it out of my head like, what would we think right now if Andrew Luck was still the quarterback there? How good would they be if Andrew Luck was still was still the quarterback there? Um, it's just, I mean, you almost wonder, like, with the team looking like it does right now, is there a possibility that Andrew Luck, and I, like, look, I, I think he's happy in retirement, but is there a possibility Andrew Luck would come from behind door number two in 2021? Um, so based on that logic, like how optimistic I was about where the Colts were, I thought they had dynasty potential a year ago before Luck retired. Um, I, a lot of those things remain in place. Their defense is fast and physical. You know, They play together, and they're ranked number one in the league in a lot of different categories. The offense, I think, is going to continue to get better. One of the best lines in football and an improving group of young skill players when they get Michael Pittman back, the way Jonathan Taylor's looked. I just... I think there's a lot of good going on in Indianapolis and you know, the guys in charge, I think, you know, Frank Reich and Chris Ballard are a huge part of that question. Number four from Sergio that's at Sergio underscore D 
How much credit can Eric Bieniemy take for Mahomes' success? Is he riding the coattails of Andy Reid? Well, that's always the big question um, with Andy Reid assistance. It was a question Doug Peterson had to face um, going to Philadelphia. It was a question that Matt Nagy had to face going to Chicago. Doug, uh, Doug Peterson, he wasn't the play caller in Kansas City. Matt Nagy, he wasn't the play caller in Kansas City. And Eric Bieniemy isn't the play caller in, in, in Kansas City. That said, play calling is just part of the equation. Leadership, how a guy commands the room, how much a guy's getting out of players on an individual basis, on a day-to-day basis. Like those are all important questions. And I think those are all boxes that Eric Bieniemy checks. Um, clearly Pat Mahomes trusts him. And, you know, there is a track record there of guys having come from that spot, that spe- specific spot, and having had success. Peterson won a Super Bowl. Nagy's been to the playoffs as a head coach. So Bieniemy has that going for him. On top of it, there's overall success when you look at that coaching tree and you look at all the guys who coached for Ron, for, for Andy Reid in Philadelphia. Ron Rivera has been to a Super Bowl. John Harbaugh has won a Super Bowl. We see the job Sean McDermott is doing in Buffalo. So um, lots of reason why you can look at Eric Bieniemy and say some team should take a shot on him in 2021. Question number five from Mike Durand at Mikey D underscore 31. Is it time now, after seeing that Patriots garbage last night, to extend to Cam Newton? Hoyer and Stidham looked like garbage. Um, you really like the word garbage there, Mike. Uh, if not, when and what's the outlook for the future of the Patriots at that position? I think now is the time to go in on Cam Newton, to extend him, give him a little sweetener, and make sure you give yourself some sort of certainty over the next few years. I think it helps you manage the salary cap when a shortfall is coming. You can dump some money into this year. I think it's going to help you get him on a little bit of a cheaper rate. I also think it helps you avoid what is a really tough situation to be in where you might be in a single year and you're looking for the quarterback of the future and you're really pigeonholed in there. That's how, you know, for example, Christian Ponder goes 12th overall. That's how Jake Locker goes 8th overall. That's how EJ Manuel goes in the middle of the first round. When these teams predetermined we're taking a quarterback this year, well, there aren't always great quarterbacks. Like, there aren't franchise game-changing quarterbacks available in every draft. And, you know, that especially goes um, for teams that are drafting a little later on, like the Patriots are. So I do think what, you know, signing cam long-term would do for you is it gives you a little bit more flexibility. And when you've got to find your guy of the future, finally, question number six from Kyle, uh, Pfeffenberger, Pfeffenberger, I think it is at Kyle Pfeff, uh, four, three, two, as a Browns fan, I love seeing my team win finally, but doing it in spite of our QB and not because of him. With the Falcons' inevitable rebuild coming next year, what are your thoughts on Matt Ryan potentially being the Browns' day one starter in 2020? Kyle, I would tell you we've got a long way to go. Um, I think Baker Mayfield has done some things that are encouraging. He looks calmer as a quarterback in the pocket. That's something they've been working on with him. Looks less frantic back there. Um, I also think what we saw, you know, his ability to manage the game a little bit better. And, you know, that's... I, those are good spots to start from with with Baker Mayfield. Doesn't mean he's going to make it, but I do think that it's way too early to pull the plug on him. Uh, but I do think that like you know the second part of your question is valid. We don't know who the coach of the Falcons is going to be in 2021. Not sure who the GM is going to be, and we're not sure where they're picking either. They're another team. If Trevor Lawrence is available, he's actually from Atlanta. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any question that if you're the Falcons and you were in that spot, you'd have to take him. And then the next step of that, of course, is that you're probably making Matt Ryan available to trade. And we have one bonus question for the week. This is from MJW. That's at Matt and Mass. Lincoln Sudbury Football or Whalen Football Better Program. There's no question, MJW, no question in my mind 
that it is the Lincoln Sudbury Warriors, the better Warriors than the Wayland Warriors, even though I did lose to them my last game against them. I appreciate you guys coming out. I appreciate you guys following us over to the new feed, especially. Um, Like I said, we're going to try to do a lot of cool new stuff, and we want your suggestions on what we can do to make the show better, too. So you guys know where to get to me on my social media feeds, at Albert Breer on Twitter, at Albert underscore Breer on Instagram, at Albert R. Breer on Facebook. And always remember to rate and review. That's going to help us, too, as we move forward here with the new podcast. Great guests great takeaways great mailbag answers great fantasy advice now too if fab's on board you get all of that but we want to make sure that we get this sort of this whole the, 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 the whole community that we've we've built here we want to make sure that we kind of get the word out to more people and the best way to do that is to rate and review us on podcast on 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 all your podcast platforms itunes all of that uh, and always remember to listen to all the MMQB podcasts. Gary's podcast on Monday mornings. Now that's on the original feed. Jenny and Connor have the Weekside podcast on their own feed. You can find all of us on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys get your shows. We're there. Same time next week. I'll see you guys then.